the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And man, I hope you're loving the Integrity Series. It's this mini series, just six episodes. And we're talking about moral failure in the church. And I also want to profile a couple of leaders that I think finished really well, Eugene Peterson being one of them. So today you're going to hear from Eugene. I'm actually going to replay an interview I did years ago with him. But before we get there, I'm going to talk to his biographer and also his son, Eric. So that's coming up. And we're going to look at the wrestling match that Eugene had. And uh, well, today's episode is also brought to you by Glue. You can get free texting for your church by going to glue.us slash texting and buy my free preaching workshop. You can register for free now for a limited time at preachingworkshop.com. So I love sitting down with Eric and with Wynn. I mean, who's in a better position to talk about what dad was really like than a son? And we're going to talk about Eugene's battle to not lose his soul because he had a battle there his workaholism and how that impacted his family, Bono and celebrity, and the tension that Eugene overcame to create a contemplative life was not automatic. So Eric has a Bachelor of Arts in Theology from Whitworth University, an MDiv from Princeton, and a Doctorate of Ministry from Portland Seminary. And he became deeply impacted when he was young from Young Life, started a club, and then served for seven years as an associate pastor at Marine View Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, After that, he founded Colbert Presbyterian Church in 1997. He's also written three books, Wade in the Water, Letters to a Young Pastor, which he wrote with his dad, Eugene Peterson, and Letters to a Young Congregation. Wynn Collier is also sitting down with us today. He is Eugene's biographer. The biography is called Burning in My Bones. He is the founding pastor of All Souls Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, and now teaches pastoral theology and directs the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And Wynn also has four additional books in addition to his biography on Eugene Peterson. Hey, I'd love for you to let me know how you're enjoying the series on integrity. Hit me up on social. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on a lot of other channels, or email me at Carrie at CarrieNewhoff.com. Hey, you're a preacher just like Eugene Peterson. And if that's you, I want you to go and register for my preaching workshop. You can go to preachingworkshop.com. It's absolutely for free. And this is this is why I'm doing it. You ever get the feeling that, you know, you pour your heart into your sermon but people forget it the moment they drive away on Sunday. That happens way more than you think. And it's disheartening to pour your soul into writing it, deliver it for 40 minutes, and by Monday morning, it's like the message wasn't even preached. Well, my 60-minute preaching workshop can help you immensely. It's free. So what I want to do is I want to help you develop messages that people can remember for months, even years after you preach the sermon. And as a result, you'll be able to connect with the unchurched. You'll be able to help people grow in their faith. And people will be able to share the exact phrases and lessons that you shared with their friends and family months or even years after. The workshop only runs a few times each year. I've already helped 3,500 pastors preach better sermons this way, and they're applying it to their lives over and over again. So registration closes on July 10th. But if you're listening to this before then, go to preachingworkshop.com to register for free. That's preachingworkshop.com for free. I only offer this a few times, so make sure you act now. And did you know that texting is now the number one preferred way to communicate? So I sat down with Dylan Wilson 
from Glue. And I said, okay, what's with that? And here is a clip of that conversation. I mean, the number one thing about texting right now is that 97% of texts that you send to people will get seen and delivered. That's their open rate. And that's much different than the low visibility that we have on other platforms and, you know, the 20% that most of us are experiencing via email. Um, One of the most unique uh, places where I feel like church leaders are missing out on text is via prayer. We've seen a lot of churches start to leverage, you know, kind of swap their normal prayer collection cards um, out for leveraging text for their congregants and their community to send in prayers. Um, That's really enabled them to increase the number of prayers because it's really easy for people kind of at a glance anywhere to submit their prayer requests. Um, for them to record all the requests in one single place, but then also to assign those prayer requests to other teammates and members on the team who um, can help follow up with those people. Church leaders, if you want to really connect with your people, visit glue.us slash texting to discover how you can build relationships with your congregation and visitors through texting absolutely free. And now my conversation with Eric Peterson and Wynn Collier. Well, welcome to the podcast, Wynn and Eric. It's really good to have you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I've been uh, very excited about this conversation. And um, we're going to talk about the life and legacy of, of your dad in particular, Eric. And when you're the authorized biographer of Eugene Peterson. So I've been very excited for this. But I think it's pretty easy to throw your hands up at the state of church and church leadership today and roll your eyes or become cynical or deconvert. But Eugene was dismayed about the direction of the church as early as I think the 1960s. Is that an exaggeration? What did he see even decades ago that disturbed or bothered him about the state of the church? I think the place I would start is to say he wasn't an instantaneous prophet. That is, I think his recognition of the disparity um, of good ecclesiology took place over time. And, uh, but I think the, the thing that he kind of eventually zeroed in on or came to realize is that the North American church uh, had failed in as much as it had begun to adopt sort of business principles and models for kind of efficiency and effectiveness. And I think his instinct was that's just not you know, the, the ways and the means of the church need to resonate with the ways and the means of the gospel. And he, he recognized that there was a pretty big disconnect and that lack of congruity um, just left him feeling like this is not, uh, we're not on a good path. Mm. Yeah. And I think with that too, was the fact that he felt that poison in his own soul, um, uh. you know, as an organizing pastor, this wasn't just something he was critiquing from afar, but it's something that he felt the tension in his own um, early years of helping to found Christ our King and Bellel, Maryland. And I think he talks about how his his competitive spirit and his his drive to succeed, you know, some people think that he sort of fell out of the womb and instant um, uh, contemplative and, you know, um, but but this is something that um, it's it, it was won over time and because because he saw the the danger to himself. Well, you know, I'm glad you kind of went there because on the one hand, from the books I've read of Eugene and the bios I've read, and then 
you know, your own work win in, in the authorized biography, um, you know, a burning in my bones. On the one hand, you have this contemplative, prophetic, you know, self-described, I think I want to become a saint and I need a lot of work to do. On the other, you've got a very competitive runner who is great at track, a winsome personality, a guy who, if I got this right, showed up at college and said, I wonder what it takes to become student council president. So there was that sort of, and, and you know, in the early days of planting a church too, feeling the pressure for growth and numbers, even to keep the lights on and the doors open. So yeah, I, I mean, there is a little bit of a, a dichotomy in his personality. Is that over extrapolating? Am I reading things into it? Or did he feel that that tension himself too, that desire to perform and and that drive. Eric, what did well, you, you see? Were, yeah, you yeah. were there, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I was inside his head um, during that time, but I my sense now as I look back on it and understand uh, more, um, that was that was a real tension. It was an ongoing yeah. struggle, and he had to kind of work, I think, to. Um, to shed some of those aspirations. Um, he, I mean, he admitted almost confessionally to being a competitor. He yeah. knew that that was part of his temperament and he knew that there were inherent pitfalls, both in terms of his work as a pastor, but I think more importantly to the condition of his soul. Um, this was a little bit later on. I mean, this was um, the story that I want to tell you is, oh, I think he had retired from Regent. So he would have been 65, 66. I was over in Montana visiting him and he was just talking about this invitation that he'd received, the details of which I don't recall. I'm not even sure we talked about yeah. them. All I remember is that it was an invitation to be a like a keynote speaker at a stadium event, like a 40,000 uh, person venue in South America. And he's kind of hemming and hawing around this invitation and kind of whether to go. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you're Eugene Peterson, and this is a unique voice that the world needs to hear. And what's yeah. the problem here? You know, we're going to, we're going to multiply your influence and we're going to, we're going to see the prayer of Jabez, you know, go all, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so finally I just said, dad, what are you worried about? Or what are you afraid of? Yeah. And I think this memory will haunt me till the day I die. He looked me right in the eye and he said, Eric, I'm afraid of losing my soul. And I, I was so caught off guard by that, that I, I think I was just nerve, you know, in my, nervousness i just said oh well i i guess that's your answer you can't do that and but wow. i've continued to think about that and to realize that with maybe a couple of rare exceptions that was a point at which he uh generally if almost always said no to those big venue big stage invitations and from then on really he was just it, it was in these environments where there was a personal connection, where he could have real conversation, where it was a small group atmosphere, or where he was preaching a sermon for, you know, the ordination service of a previous student. 
Wow, Eric, you know, and the funny thing is you talk to young leaders today and it would seem like the dream, or I'm not even saying maybe in my own soul, the dream is to be invited to be the keynote in front of 40,000 leaders, right? Like that's, that's a, that's a really interesting self-restraint that your dad had. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think he practiced restraint previously. I think that uh-huh. became a discipline. I think he, he really did diligently follow the way of kenosis. He was trying to go, you know, trying to empty himself of that ambition and pride, um, achievement stuff. And this is sort of the result of that. I think he just was, you know, came to recognize that I'm the custodian of this soul. And I can't, I can't put it in jeopardy. Um, and that kind of an environment is just way too seductive. Um, uh, so it just became really clear. I can't do that. That's not, I'm not a celebrity pastor. Wow. What, what is kenosis? The way of kenosis? Oh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a New Testament word for uh, kind of self-emptying. It refers, so Paul picks it up in the Christ hymn of Philippians. Um, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, though in the form of God, emptied himself. Um, and as the, you know, as the great ones, the spiritual masters talk about the life in Christ, the life of discipleship is, you know, there's, there's dying, there's crucifixion. I've been crucified with Christ. And, um, and I think that's part of Eugene's grievance with the North American church is it's like, it's all about triumphant and winning and success and Jesus goes to the cross. And so the life of a Christ follower is one of kenosis, of self-emptying, of humility, service, um, obscurity. When you had access to all of his private letters, his diaries, uh, obviously all of his published works, um, what would you add to that about the internal battle that Eugene faced at different stages of his life. Yeah, you know, a big part of me almost just wants to pause here for a moment because I I'm just feeling <laughs> um I'm feeling deeply moved remembering myself how um I think those of us who love Eugene, those of us who've read Eugene, those of us who at least know the name Eugene and attach it's easy for us to turn Eugene into a caricature. And that even things like, you know, small church pastor itself can become a kind of formula. And I think what Eric was just um, leading us into is the deep heart of it, which was it was it wasn't about any of these things themselves becoming the new agenda or the new way. It was about this deep desire to be formed to be like Jesus and to have the life of God released in a human body for the sake of love for the world. And that Eugene said yes to that. Mm. And, and, and the more he said yes, the more he recognized um, how dangerous this path was. And this is interesting. Um, I think that one, that one you were referring to, Eric, I think that was Brazil. And, um, I remember reading him in a letter, it may have been to you, I can't remember, just the immense relief he felt. Because I think he had a a car wreck or an accident of some sort, or there was something that happened that meant he couldn't go. And he felt just this immense relief. 
because because um, he didn't want to let people down. And now he, he I guess he felt like um, some people wouldn't just take the answer of um, this is dangerous to my soul is good enough, you know? <laughs> and um, but so this is soon after, as Eric mentioned, after he left Regent and he also gave that in his diary as one of the reasons, one of the reasons he needed to leave Regent is he said that he believed his soul was in mortal danger um, because he, he was, he felt like he was being treated something like a guru. And it wasn't just like, you know, I need to rethink things. It was like my, my soul is in jeopardy here. And I don't know about y'all, but I, I want to say yes to Jesus like that. (laughs) (laughs) I want, I want to be, I want to be transformed uh, in ways that would, that my deep desire would be for something more than um, the things that I think are going to bring credit to my name, you know? Yeah, I, I remember when he was at Regent. So I was at seminary at University of Toronto in that okay. same era where Eugene had gone to Regent, which was the early to mid-90s, wasn't it? Something like that. Right. I think I started seminary in 93 and finished in 97. And he was at Regent at the time, and it was a buzz in Toronto. I mean, Eugene Peterson is at Regent. And I thought about going there to study, but I was married and a kid on the way and the whole deal. So I didn't, but yeah, there was that, there was that buzz. He had enough prominence as an author and we were all reading his books and, you know, the message came out. Was that 93 was the first year the message was published in the new Testament form? I should remember this offhand. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> Thereabouts. Right around there. Yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. around there. So it was, it was, it was a big thing, but that's one of the things I, I really appreciated about a burning in my bones was it's not a hagiography. There was a lot to appreciate about Eugene, and yet you go into some of his struggles as well. And and I want to want to talk about that. But Eric, I'd I'd love to. Is there anything else on that before, you know, that that deep peril to his soul? Um, maybe we should hang out in that space a little bit longer. <laughs> uh, I don't know that there's more to add, but I do think that's. It's significant. It's important to know that in order to understand him. And for anyone that has an admiration or is inclined to in any way emulate him, that needs to be a piece of it. Uh, that there's the the struggle um, in this culture, church culture, you know, tension, um, uh, and. Um, and and just that kind of that resolve, I think, is what it comes down to. It's just that determination. And this, I believe, is part of where his, you know, the, he's, he was a, an enormously disciplined person. And that's where that uh, shows up in some significant ways is the, um, uh, just the, the caution, the great care um, that he took with, um, sort of lifestyle and the, the things that he would do and would not do in order to um, kind of participate in that process of sanctification. And he did it imperfectly. If you read the biography, you'll see he was very huh. flawed. And, um, but, but that was his heart's desire. Did, okay, I, I hadn't thought about this question until you guys uh, started chatting a little bit, but, you know, Eugene was contemplative in the sense that probably I'm guessing an introvert 
uh, you know, your mom, Eric said, wish the man talked more, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> seemed to be quiet, enjoy a silence, voluminous reader, um, eschewed the spotlight, etc. But sometimes we believe our own press reports. I mean, he sold a lot of books and the message was an international phenomena. Um, and he doesn't claim credit for writing the message. He said, God wrote that. I just translated. That's all. But, you know, and, and you often, it's easy to get surrounded with people who tell you what you want to hear. So I'd like to know, how did he remind himself or did he have people who reminded him that his soul could be in peril? Like, how does this stay a constant narrative? even when you're 65 years old, so that you haven't just morphed into some version of yourself you want to believe is true. Do you know what I mean? Like I need to go to these stages or I need to get rid of like, how is that still a wrestling in his mind? Who or what were the influence? Were, were there any outside influences that helped keep that front and center for him? Well, I think the external influences were to the contrary. I think he was hearing voices that would were urging him to go big. Um, and so the, um, that, that care, that caution, if not the fear, um, about losing his soul or, you know, sabotaging something that was, that God was trying to do, or just, um, being the person that he believed he was made to be. I think, um, I mean, when may have a different take on this, but my yeah. own sense is that that emerged from, a deep life of prayer. Hmm. Uh, he was, I mean, he was just the holiest man I've ever known or read about, um, you know, known or known of. So I just, I think this comes out of a deep piety and devotion and an attentiveness to uh, himself. So that, that contemplative lifestyle lent itself toward uh, being wary of the saboteurs. Mm-hmm. You know, without naming names, for sure. If you've got publishers involved, uh, I can only imagine knowing that industry a little bit, they're going to recommend you take all the top things that come along. And and that's not saying anything against publishers. That's just the industry. That's the way it works. Interesting. When what's your take on that? Having poured over his papers, etc. Yeah. I mean, prayer is absolutely at the heart of it. And a life shaped by attentiveness to God. And and him seeking out um, voices that were other than the the siren songs. So you know, for large sections of his life, he had a sister who was his spiritual director, and um, he uh, he he resisted the the pull to uh, the the large and magnanimous things, but he was. He, he was in all kinds of small circles of friendship with, um, you know, pastors and farmers and <laughs> writers and songwriters who were just doing good, faithful work. And I think he sought that out and, and wanted to be in those conversations because it felt true to him. And there was something that was really shared in a, in a vocation, even if they weren't doing exactly the same thing. So I think the, pe- the people he listened to and trusted the most were the voices that most of us have never heard of. Yeah, Eric, what what happened to your dad and your mom's friendship circle 
as time went on? They Did they stay grounded in relationships that had been around for a long time? I mean, we'll get to it. He eventually ended up hanging out with Bono, and that's a funny story in and of itself. But like when you look at the trajectory of their lives, did their friendship circles change? How did it change? Who did they keep close to them? Yeah, I think they changed with the geography, the geographical changes. So um, I remember them talking about, you know, new friends that they made after leaving Bel Air in Pittsburgh when he spent a year as a writer in residence. And then the community that was rich that developed in and around the Regent community. And, uh, and some of those friendships uh, transcended the miles, but it seemed like they were mostly local. Um, and so by the time they kind of retreated to Northwest Montana for a, supposedly a final retirement, um, a lot of those folks would come and visit, but they, um, they developed community there. Uh, they were right on Flathead Lake and the, you know, there were neighbors that they knew they had meals with a uh, little Lutheran church. They attended uh, five miles down the road that became a rich source of community for them. And, and I think part of what was important and valuable about um, that Montana community is they didn't think he was a big deal at all. They just thought, um, you know, you, Jan's delightful and Eugene is tolerable and, you know, no one, no one writes books. Um, they're just, you know, they're pleasant people and they, uh, they make good dinner conversation. No, that's a, that's a really interesting trend, you know, to, to cultivate friendships with people who aren't impressed by you or don't know who you are, because it would be easy to imagine people just jetting in and jetting out to Montana to visit with, your parents, and I'm sure that happened from time to time, yeah. but with the kind of influence that your dad had to keep those local humble friendships, I think is is really instructive and so countercultural today, so countercultural for ambitious and driven leaders. Eric, I'd love to know what were some of the earliest memories you have of your dad? I think Wynn asked me that when he was interviewing me for the biography. Uh -huh. um, and I don't know if this is the same answer that I gave him, but, um, but uh, I, I, we, I love being close to him physically. Yeah. Um, we, had a, we had a physical kind of wrestling relationship uh, when I was a kid. And he, as a, you know, an East Coast Presbyterian pastor, wore a Geneva gown yeah. to lead worship. Um, and the, you know, the tabs and the collar. And, um, so it was pretty formal. And after worship, I would climb under his gown, his rope, oh. and just sort of hang on to his leg and, you know, pretend that I was in this like invisible cloak. No one could see me. No one knew where I was. And it just felt like the secret hiding place, uh, but allowed me to be close to him and, um, and, but no one else knew that I was there in my own pediatric mind, you know? <laughs> uh, um, so that's a, that's a memory. And I think part of that, as I look back on that, I just think, gosh, he, you know, that was a season when it was still, he was a young pastor at that point still. It was a young church. And I think he, that competitive spirit was a part of him and he wanted to win and be successful. And he tolerated this little, you know, five or six year old 
son of his uh, getting tangled up in his Geneva gown, not worried about his reputation or what people would think about that. And, um, and that just, I just find that very like, oh, that's, that's what dads do, you know? Um, so I'm just, that's one of my favorite memories. You know, what's so telling is when I asked the question, your face lit up. So I know there are some people watching this on YouTube, but that's a tell for sure. For all of you who are listening, I asked the question, Eric, and you just like brighten up and you smile and you're like, ah, memories of dad. That's great. What about your mom? Tell us about your mom. They, they were married for how many years before your dad passed and your mom passed shortly after that? Oh gosh. Do you know when? 59? 60? I think 59 is right. Yeah. Long time. I should have my timeline here in front of me. And I don't. That's okay. It's all, listen, five, let, let's call it six decades of marriage. Yeah. That's a long relationship. It was long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, so, uh, I've been, I've been through a ton of therapy. <laughs> Good, for there. Good for you. Um, and, and a lot of that had to do, not all of it, but a lot of that had to do with uh, an overachieving, oh, uh, sort of workaholic, I think, dad. Um, so I experienced his absence and came to a point in my life where I realized I really missed something. And, uh, and that's no small part, I believe, in my psychological motivation for becoming a pastor and entering into his world and orbit and, uh, in order to get some attention. Uh, that doesn't discount, I believe, the, the actual spiritual motivation and the call that God has placed in my life. But I, I think that's a big piece of it. And it's not a mistake that the point at which I expressed interest in ministries when our relationship really took off in a significant way and we've became uh, quite close. I think I asked him once, Who, who's your best friend? And he said, uh, you are. And I thought, you ought to be, a, you should be able to do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I lost my train of thought. Oh, oh, this is just, I think it's by way of my mother uh, really raised the three kids. I'm a middle child. And so my memory of like bedtime is always Jan uh, reading a, a Bible story book, you know, one of those arch books. Um, yeah. That was the bedtime routine. She would, my brother and I shared bunk beds. Uh, so she would read these stories, listen to our prayers, kiss us goodnight. And uh, I just had no memory of my dad at that time because he was out at a meeting or visiting people or, you know, doing something outside the house. Uh, so she really just took care of us. She raised us and fed us and all the, did, did all the things um, in terms of the nurturing. Can we talk a little bit more about the workaholic side of your dad's story? Because that's not, un it's sad. It's not uncommon in ministry. And that's one of my great regrets about me as a young dad in my 30s. You know, when our church was small, I was out four nights a week. And when it got bigger, it was one night a month, but my kids were teenagers by then. And it's one of the great sadnesses of my life. Um, what, with your dad, what, what do you think drove that, that workaholism in him? Well, Again, Wynn might have another take on this. I think at, at some level, primitively, it's, uh, it's repeating a, a family pattern. This is what his dad did. 
um, his dad had a business. He was the local butcher and just worked really hard, um, including parts of Sundays. And um, so I think that's the model. Uh, yeah. Partly, it's just a, a generational model that he uh, probably adopted without a lot of scrutiny. I think he just kind of fell into it. And my mother did a great job of raising the kids and attending to all things domestic and and didn't complain about it, apparently, uh, enough at least that that changed any behavior. Um, so it was, I mean, my sister, uh, I think I learned this in the biography, actually. Uh, yeah. My sister's the one that counted Called the number out. of dates. Yeah, pretty right. much. Um, yeah. And I think that did shake him out of it a little bit, at least alerted him to the fact that he needed to be more present uh, to the family, attentive to the kids. What was the number? Like 27 days in a row or 24 days in a row? Something like is that, it yeah. Karen, your sister, said to your dad, you've been gone that long and it was a bit of a, a wake-up call for him? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she was keeping track. When, when what's your take on, on that? What, what do you see? Yeah, I mean, I think Eugene named it himself that, that he was living out his his dad's story in some ways. I think, um, I think there was some self reflection in his diary at some point where he said, I, th I do think I'm a better dad than what I received, but I'm not as good a dad as I had hoped I'd been. Um, and I think for me, one of the most moving moments in this storyline was when Eric had the courage to, to write out the letter to his dad, um, to explain, these wounds and, and, and this, how that had played into his story and, and how, when he shared it, you know, Eugene's response wasn't defensiveness, but was regret and sorrow and love and how that was a healing balm to Eric. And, um, that, that was a healing thing to me as a dad to think, I mean, I know I've screwed up so many times oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's so many things I would do different, but I don't think if we genuinely love our children, um, I don't think our our children are looking much more for us than a genuine I'm sorry and I wish I'd been better. And I think they're so quick to forgive because their love is strong too. And that's just really, really hopeful to me. Um, but I also think it's no small thing that we, we started our conversation maybe a half hour ago talking about this this poison and this, this um, ambition that was rooted in Eugene. And, and his his struggling with this. Well, this is the same time frame where he's having um, he's not being the father that he actually wanted to be, and so I think um, that was part of the uh, unlayering of how profound this danger is and how it how it affects the things we love most dearly. Yeah, Eric, what were, what was the letter you wrote to your dad? Do you mind talking about that? Um, there's, the backstory to it is uh, about a year after I was ordained, he resigned from the church that he founded after serving it for 29 years. And in that resignation letter, he described the experience he had on the night of my ordination when I was kneeling before this congregation. Um, I mean, this is my childhood church. And that's where I grew up, and and uh, and it was a powerful experience for me, you know, to have all these 
elders laying their hands on me. Some of them had changed my diapers, you know. And uh, and in, in, in this letter that he writes to explain what's going on with the congregation, he said, on the night of which, on which my son Eric was ordained, I was offering this ordination prayer and had this sentence simultaneously that I was not to be here much longer. And so that's when he was first alerted to that call kind of shifting and being led out. But my response when I read the letter was, what? That was my night. And it's like the Holy Spirit's doing something with you also. And, And it just felt like, dang, one more time. You know, the church got cuts to the front of the line for my dad's affection. And it just, I mean, it just uh, raised all kinds of stuff for me. And it just sent me into my journal. And I, I spent, I don't know how many hours just reflecting. And that's where I really started to access. And I think it was just the honesty of finally uh, accessing the, the father wounds of absenteeism and, um, and just feeling like, what do I need to do to get your attention? You know, what do I, what do I need to do for you to just linger over me, not rush on to your next thing? And uh, so that, that propelled me into some good therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that resulted in this letter that Wynn's referring to. And I, so I called him up and just asked him, next time I come to visit, can we spend some time together? Got some things I want to share with you. We went for a, a hike. We climbed Mount St. John's in Montana and found the foundation of an old cabin, sat on this broken down foundation. And I just read this out loud to him. It was maybe three pages of me just reflecting on memories and uh, uh, and just, just the things that kind of point to, he just weren't there for me. And, um, and my, my child, I mean, you weren't the dad I needed. Uh, he didn't show up. And he, I was just terrified of doing this. I just thought, uh, this, it just felt really consequential. Like this could go really badly. And as Wynn said, he was altogether non-defensive. He just listened and he wept. He was altogether contrite. And I remember him saying, I, I didn't realize to the extent to which I repeated what my dad did. Uh, I'm so sorry. Um, so that, that really was the, a turning point in our relationship. Um, and it was, it was deeply healing, but it could have been otherwise. He could have just dug in his heels and said, you know, called me an ingrate or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, but that, I think, is emblematic of his character. Um, just that's, um, he just, he, made, he didn't make a single excuse. And I think that's, you know, part of what I learned in that is, you know, as the Bible talks about the sins of the fathers being passed down generationally, as long as well as the blessings, it was just helpful for me to kind of pay attention to that. Like, I'm an heir to some generational curses. Um, Some of that's addiction. Some of that's workaholism. Um, But my goodness, there are also these generational blessings as well uh, that, that, um, that don't diminish. I mean, that they're, they're real. Um, but I also think, I mean, he, he's right in his own self-assessment that he was a better dad to me and my sibs than 
his dad it was to Eugene and his two sibs. Um, and I'd like to think that I was a better dad to my three children. Um, and I'm watching my kid, my children with their kids now. I'm a, I'm a three-time grandfather. And they're magnificent. Like, that seems to be getting better. Uh, the Peterson parenting pattern is healing. And that's a really gratifying thing to see. What did you change in your parenting, intentionally or unintentionally, with your kids? Because you're doing the same job your dad did. You're pastoring a local Presbyterian church. You've got all the pressures to be out 20 out of 30 times a month. You've got all the pressures to be on call and interrupt dinner with phone calls, which you write about when in the biography, right? Like the phone would ring and Eugene would pick it up. Oh, I remember those days back when we had home phones. What have you done in your own parenting, um, Eric, for boundary setting and plotting a new generational course? Well, I just made a decision, I think pretty early on, uh, that my kids would never feel like they uh, came in second. Uh, when they call, I answer the phone. When they ask for help, I'm there. And I'll cancel pretty much anything in order to be available to them. So I'm sure I've, I've done that imperfectly, but I think they grew up knowing that I was all about them. And, um, and the church wasn't more important than them. And I think I got a little better at that as I got older and more confident um, you know, I was running scared for a while. I didn't know what I was doing as a young pastor, but I'm actually looking um, toward retirement at this point. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I kind of feel like I don't have anything more to prove. And I, if, if there's a legacy in my life, I want it to be about like um, my, my kids and my grandkids and my marriage. I, I want it to be about the relationships. Um, I just don't want to be another statistic in terms of, uh, you know, pastor kids who want nothing to do with their parents or the God or the church. So I think it was just, it was in reaction. It was, it was mostly a conscious reaction to my own experience. And like, I, I want to be a different dad. Um, not that I, you know, I love my kids more than my dad did, just that I'm more, just think I'm more, um, more attentive. And I used that word linger earlier. I just, I feel like I, I, I never want them to feel rough around me. I like, I just, I'm just relishing the time I get to spend with you. When I, I, you know, this isn't defending workaholism by any stretch, but it does help explain it. One of the things that you talk about in the biography and has shown up in other places in Eugene's work is, if I'm not mistaken, he never intended to plant a church. His denomination asked him to. It was kind of foisted on him. He didn't know how to do it. And I remember that as a young pastor, there are just sort of expectations unspoken that get thrust upon you. You will do all the visitation. You will be at all the meetings. You will conduct the Bible study. You will preach at least once a week, maybe more if you're really faithful and we do a second service, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember sort of accepting that invisible script for a number of years until I rejected it and wrote a new one. Was that a factor in Eugene's ministry? Like this is the template of how to do ministry and he just kind of embraced it because he didn't have an alternative? Or do you have any thoughts on that, Win? I don't think I have any original thoughts, but 
yeah. I think you, what you laid out is true. I think uh, he was working within a system that that he was welcomed into, and I mean, he was always a team player. Um, he he did want to do what was expected of him and do a good job, and um, so you give his personality and the way he'd been brought up, and you throw that in, and this is what you got. Any thought, Eric, on the pressures of the system? Because there is a system and there are invisible scripts that, you know, depending on your denomination, your background, like this, you're a pastor, this is basically what you're going to do. Mm. I mean, to some extent, um, although I feel sort of gratefully and blessedly uh, free of a lot of that, um, partly that's the gift of a new church development. So I also organized the church that I now serve. And so when you're the founding influence, you kind of get to set the expectations. Um, and when I came to start this church, I had been ordained for seven years already. And so I had a pretty good sense of my own, you know, the, the contours of my vocation, what was important, um, kind of ha had my voice as a preacher and so <clears throat> I think I was less susceptible to um, persuasive voices that would have sort of called me to do something different that wasn't true to uh, my own self and, and how God was uh, going to use me. Um, so, you know, here I am 26 years later, and I'm the only pastor some of these folks have known, and and that's that might be a little frightening uh, in terms of my successor, like uh, because she uh, she's been named and and that's part of what, part of what we're talking about. Like there there are other ways to do this, right? Um, and uh, so we're going to overlap for a couple of years just to try to help ease that transition. But I, I think I've just been mostly free from those pressures and expectations. Um, yeah, if you, and that's and I know that that's unusual. I feel like that's that's somewhat unique. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. Well, that's a really good place to be and experience as a, a great teacher as well. And my reset came firmly when we started uh, when we amalgamated the three churches and we built something new that I felt like I could reset the die. Um, I want to talk about and and this this is a bit of a hypothetical. But one thing that's clear in the writing is that Eugene felt an ambivalence about pastoring. There were parts of it he absolutely loved. He loved the sacraments. He seemed to really enjoy preaching. And yet not every elder was deeply enamored of him. Uh, the congregation sometimes thought he wrote too much or was away too much. Um, if you were a, a parishioner and a tender at Christ Our King, in the 70s or 80s when Eugene was there, what would your experience of him as a local pastor have been like? Because most of us have only accessed him through his books. Well, I was a parishioner in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the 60s. Uh -huh. um, I mean, he was my pastor for the first 19 years of my life. And I, I think what I you know, witnessed both in the public and the private, I mean, I... You know, when you live with someone, you, you kind of, you hear some things and, oh my goodness, I just, I never, I never once heard him speak disparagingly about a parishioner. Um, he just honored them. 
I, I know he got frustrated at times and there were difficult people, but he, he never spoke in a belittling way um, that I overheard. So I, I saw him and experienced him as a pastor who was steady, faithful, showed up, you know, week after week, day after day. Um, he was a, he was a faithful expositor of the scriptures. He was a good preacher, not, not a phenomenal preacher, but he was good and solid. I, I found it really meaningful, learned a lot from him. He was a kind of an old fashioned pastor in the sense that he was very attentive to pastoral care issues. He visited, uh, he was in the hospitals a lot, homes, nursing homes, um, did spiritual direction with people in his study. Um, and, and had this company of pastors that, uh, you know, attended, uh, mostly lectionary texts every Tuesday for the first half of the day. That's right. Yeah. And, um, so those were the, the rhythms. Um, and somehow part of that rhythm in my mind is that he walked from our house to the church back and forth. Um, only drove when he had to be in town to, you know, for a meeting or to visit someone. Otherwise, he was just walking that, it was just, I think it was a half mile pilgrimage each way. And that just seemed to be part of his rhythm. And I think that became sort of emblematic of his sort of this pedestrian pastoral pace. Um, it was just, it was slow, leisurely, unhurried. Um, and and contemplative, you know. He, I'm sure he was praying as he was walking, and the the times I got to walk with him, if I just you know lingered long enough after worship, I would walk home with him, and uh, that that always felt like a gift that he invited me in or allowed me to be uh, in on his solitude. So that part is warmly reassuring. I'm like, okay, that's what I imagined it would be like to be part of his church, and yet when. The journals and and the private writings you had access to seem to portray more of a struggle that Eugene felt internally with local pastoral ministry. What what did you see in his internal struggle with it? Yeah, I was so glad that I found the journals um, because I feel like they gave uh, an an insight to Eugene that um that I'm not even sure like a decade or two later he would have quite remembered right because what he allowed himself in those journals because I think he, I think you're exactly I think what you heard from Eric is what I heard from parishioners when I interviewed them yeah they perceived him as uh, immensely encouraging deeply present um and but all of us have to have a place where we can process <laughs> yeah. the things that aren't that, right? And I think it was actually a very mature and um, an act of, of spiritual discipline and love for the people that he did process it with God. And I'm assuming he also processed it with his spiritual director, but he processed it with God in his journals. Um, but it was, act, it, was, it was an act of honoring that he... Uh, wasn't going to burden other people with that. And it wasn't dishonest. I mean, I don't think you ever got the sense that, you know, he thought everything was, was ice cream and cherries, but 
But his his deeper conviction was what God was doing with the congregation. So even amid a um, a, a personality conflict or you know uh, some trouble that he might have with someone on the session or something, it was this deep abiding conviction that God was up to something, and that and that while his human emotions were part of the story, something he needed to work through, those things left unchecked could actually get in the way of what God was up to. One of the things I I heard in various ways um, from several parishioners, and I, and I would say that was probably a place where I had a little fear and trepidation because um, I was committed to telling an honest story. I mean, I think that's required of me as a biographer, and it would be, it would be, um, it wouldn't be uh, in honoring of Eugene's own way and posture to not be truthful. Um, so, but I just wondered, like, what am I going to discover when I start going back decades and talking with parishioners? Uh, what what am I going to hear? And again, I don't think anybody thought Eugene was perfect. But what I heard over and again was, I can't necessarily point to a moment, but over the years, I started to realize that I was seeing myself the way God saw me. Mm. Or I was all of a sudden understanding my life as part of God's story. My life, my my story and my life was small. And then years later, after, after being... Um, in Eugene's circle, hearing him tell the stories of scripture, hearing him pray, hearing him teach me how to pray, having conversations, going on walks, I recognized later that I was in a much larger story and it was God's. And and so I think it was that vision that was constantly moving Eugene. Um, yes, there were things that were really difficult and reading his, his journals, you get more of the flavor that you wouldn't have gotten from a Sunday morning because it wasn't about Eugene. He was absolutely committed to the fact that, that what he was doing was not about him. And so while he needed to be honest with himself, what was more important was to point people to God. So I love that framework because, you know, I always think it's helpful to lead publicly and process privately. Right. But I do remember at several points in the biography and maybe from some of his own writings as well, that he was really, and maybe this was in the last decade of his time at Christ Our King, debating with how much longer can I do this? How much more energy do I have in my tank? I'm tired of the elder meetings. I'm tired of, of this. Like all the normal stuff that a leader would go through. To what extent was that a factor in his leadership win? And feel free to fill it in with other, yeah. you know, things yeah, he struggled I mean- with. Right. I mean, I mean, he came back. So he went on that sabbatical, that year sabbatical, yeah. which he had never had a sabbatical before. Um, so we had a year and he came back and that, that first six to nine months, he was riding high. I mean, he, he, I remember, you know, he said something like, I, I could have gone forever, you know, but that lasted about 18 months, <laughs> you know. And um, I, I think one thing that's actually quite beautiful about this is one of the things a lot of pastors remember about Eugene uh, is his his encouragement to stay as long as you possibly can, to not mm. constantly be be moving around. But again, for Eugene, that was tied to ambition. It was leaving for reasons of ambition. But one of the reasons he thought 
was a good reason to leave a church was if you just began to discern that you didn't have the energy or the capacity to guide the church in the next season of whatever God you sense God was doing with the church. But the the real difference there, again, is God. Mm. <laughs> um, before, you know, if I'm sort of living out the idea that as the next larger church that asked me to come be their pastor is obviously what I should do, that's not really about God. That's about me. Um, and so I think with Eugene, it was it was just constantly coming back to this question of what is God doing? And it wasn't like, what is God doing broadly in some nebulous way with this church? It was specific people, specific stories. What is God up to with them? And what is my role in that? And so that was a much more um, profound guiding light for him. I think uh, there was also, you know, that, that this I think represents a season where the evolution of its vocation is is shifting. Right. Yep. Yeah. And during that year-long sabbatical, uh, he, he wrote three books. Right. <laughs> and and that became increasingly um, part of his vocational identity. I'm a writer, pastor-writer, writer-pastor. And so I think part of what's going on during this season, the, the latter years of Christ our King, is he's sensing or discerning that um, that writer um, sort of pastor, I guess, is the adjective for writer. He's a pastoral writer rather than a, a writing pastor. Right. Um, I'd love to talk about, because we've hinted at this already a little bit, but his relationship with fame. So one of the people who did seek him out was Bono from U2. And uh, the video shot at the house, the cottage, whatever you want to call it, at uh, Flathead Lake in Montana was just, I watched it again yesterday. I watched it when it first came out, watched it again, prepping. Just so emotional to see Bono and your parents and your mom making cookies, Eric, and then greeting him and just sitting down and the unhurried pace and the discussion of the Psalms, I think Fuller put that on. And then some other videos shot up at the lake. Just really was powerful. He seemed very unaffected by Bono, didn't even know who he was. Can you take us through that story for people who may, who may not know the backstory behind Bono and your dad and your mom and uh, what the significance of that was to your dad and eventually to Bono? <clears throat> well, I don't, I'm not sure I, I know. Uh, there yeah. was, you know, there were some people that kind of gave... Um, some words of appreciation uh, when the message was completed. Um, said some nice words of, you know, thank you and appreciation. And Bono was one of those. He sent a kind of a video message on behalf of the band um, and kind of exclaimed about how, how much he appreciated the, the translation. And, the, and you two uh, used it. That is, their, they would often read a, a psalm backstage prior to going out and performing in concert. Um, and so I think there was, when Mike might remember the details better, I think my folks went to a concert. They were invited and, and spent, so they went to a concert and, um, and then spent several hours together just in conversation. I think that was kind of their initial time to meet and get acquainted. And that's what preceded this conversation at the Lake Place that David Taylor uh, curated around the Psalms. 
um, I think it was a bigger deal for my mother. I don't think Silvano kissed her on the cheek and I don't think she washed her face for like two weeks. Um, she knew, she knew who he was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think the, the takeaway for me, uh, I mean, it really was not that big a deal to Eugene. Um, it was a big deal to his students and others of us. But I think the thing that I remember most from that time was Eugene came to recognize that Bono is a brother in the faith. And, uh, and this, what he's doing as a musician is ministry. Uh, he's pointing to the kingdom of God. And um, so I, I think for people that may have been suspicious about that, you know, maybe something about the Irish style, uh, language or whatever, um, th there may have been a validation for some folks in some people's minds like, oh, Eugene thinks he's a le legitimate uh, partner in the, in the gospel. Um, but it, yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, I knew this was coming. I knew the, the appointment was happening. And then the next time we got together, um, they talked about it, but it was not a big deal to them at all. Right. Right. We had this guy over at the lake. Yeah. When, when, what's, what's your assessment of that? Because I think the part that got me and even the way they tell the story on the Fuller documentary, and we can, we can post to that in the show notes too, if you want to watch it, it's just very, very heartwarming. Actually, it made me tear up watching it again. Um, was just, you know, that Eugene was the first to go, yeah, I didn't really know who Bono was and seems like a good lad and we'll have him in. Right. Um, but there was that unaffectedness that, 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 I thought was very endearing and rare. Yeah. Well, it was because he had work to do. Um, huh. You know, so part of the backstory is that they had asked if there would be a way to arrange for Eugene and Bono to meet up. And, and Eugene said no. And that's right. Um, and he was, there's a, there is a YouTube video of a writer's conference where he's being interviewed by someone and, the, the sort of dean the, at uh, yeah the Nazarene College I think yeah right? that's right that's right Oloma. Oloma yeah yeah I watched that and, one too uh, so he's kind of narrating this and and he, he you know and, and he said you said no to Bono and everyone starts laughing and and then Dean says but Eugene it was Bono and what Eugene had already described was that he was in the tail end of of finishing up the Old Testament in the Message right. translation and so Dean says. Uh, Eugene, it was Bono, and everybody laughs and it sort of pauses when it dies down, and then and then Eugene says, "But Dean, it was it was Isaiah <laughs> or Jeremiah, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, it was Isaiah, I think." And uh, and I and again, I I mean, it's funny now, and it's you know, it's it's a little quirky, but I think the deeper truth is it it wasn't you know some kind of weird asceticism. It wasn't him trying to be the guy who who doesn't care about Bono. It was like he he had work to do. God had called him to do this. And that was what was essential. And he did arrive at a place where it, you know, someone um who had a big celebrity, that just wasn't that was of zero concern to him. Um it was like what is God up to? And and that connects very much with what Eric just said, which was his deep love 
and admiration for what Bono was doing had nothing to do with Bono's celebrity. It had everything to do with the fact that Bono was being true to what God had called him to do. And, and Eugene could see that. And, and um, because of Bono's uh, fame, it made him all the more careful about ever referring to Bono, using Bono in any way. So when I was gathering um, names and information from Eugene and Jan about people to interview, et cetera, they were so generous with everything. I mean, they just, they, they opened up their lives and their resources and everything to me with no questions about how I was going to use it or anything. The one, um, the one place it was different was Bono. Um, Eugene was very skittish about um, in any way asking Bono to do something that felt like it was appealing to him because of his celebrity. And um, so I, that's who he was to his core. And I'm so glad you told that because that is so countercultural in this moment. Most of us, if we got a minute with Bono, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't last 30 seconds without being on TikTok or Instagram or, you know, whatever. And I, I think that's very endearing and all too rare in our generation. Eric, I got a few more questions. Such a rich conversation, by the way. Thank you both so much. Eric, your parents, again, I watched a number of videos, read the biography, read your dad's books, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you wrote a great book uh, with your dad called Letters to a Young Pastor, where you share letters over a number of years, which is so powerful. But I want to talk about the relationship between your mom and your dad. It seems like there were definitely differences, but they made it work in, in, in a beloved way over six decades. What were, what were some of the strengths of that marriage? And then what were some of the tension points that you saw between your mom and your dad in their relationship and how they made it work over the years? Yeah, I, I think they were just um, deeply devoted to each other. And so they were committed to making whatever happened work. Um, I think I remember one time hearing my dad raise his voice uh, at my mother. And uh, it was at the dinner table, and he actually slammed his fist on the table and said, "Cool it, Jan." <laughs> oh! And, and everyone just everyone kind of got quiet. <clears throat> um, but they they just adored each other, and uh, and Jan loved her role as pastor's spouse. Um, I think the I think the tension I probably most witnessed was later when when I think Jan had this expectation that his work would uh, uh, tail off a little bit, the intensity, the hours, um, and was sort of jealous for his time and just found that he just, I remember one time uh, he, they were at our house and he had a legal pad and he was just jotting some stuff down. We, we, he and I were talking and he had some, some idea for a book. I said, what are you doing, dad? He said, well, I just have this idea. And, always got an idea for the next book, you know, and Jan walked into the room and under, you know, figured out what he was doing. And she just about, you know, like her mouth opened up and she's like, what are you doing? Um, be done with this. Um, so that, that was certainly a point of, uh, tension, uh, just feeling like he worked really hard, uh, up to the end and, 
he felt, I think maybe the way I felt as a child, a bit neglected. Um, and he worked at that. That is, he, when he really did give up the, the writing pen, uh, he took over some domestic responsibilities. Uh, he had a laundry day each week. And uh, that was just something that he kind of took on, almost like a monastic discipline. Like that's part of my uh, contemplative rhythm. I'm doing the laundry. Um, but I think the other, uh, the other thing I would point to in terms of a marital rhythm is their Sabbath-keeping practices. Uh, Monday was his day off, and um, at some point, they, they, this became kind of a sacrosanct discipline for them. Um, I remember, you know, getting ready, taking off, going to school, um, junior high, high school, and they were they were packing their lunches. They were getting ready to hit the trail and. Uh, hike, spend the day um, just in in quiet and conversation and prayer. Uh, that was their Sabbath rhythm. And I expect um, that that was a, an important sustaining practice. It, uh, it was adapted over the years, but they were, they were pretty diligent about Sabbath keeping together. You know, I don't think this made it into the book, but you mention, you know, the rhythm of life. And again, the videos give you a uh, view into their home, their retirement home. And it had been, obviously it's waterfront property, but it had been in the family since the 1940s. But, you know, your dad published 35 books, sold a lot of copies. I'm sure they didn't have financial considerations. But if you're walking into the home, it looks like a very normal middle-class family home. You know, you got a white Mr. Coffee from the 1990s uh, <laughs> that's about 20 years old on the cabinet. There's there's nothing affected about the environment. And I want to know that that humility that your parents seem to have, that, that Eugene and Jan seem to have, how did they handle that financially in their lifestyle and things like that? What did you see? Yeah, I think what I saw is that it did not affect them in any significant way in terms of their own uh, lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is that they were, you know, they always struggled financially. Um, Being a pastor. Not, I get my it. dad was not a well-paid pastor. Yeah. Um, and so you learn how to live on a budget and you learn how to live simply. And they had adopted um, those, those val the values of simplicity. So they didn't accumulate stuff, um, didn't value stuff, um, unless it had an aesthetic quality about it. Um, I remember trying to buy him a tool and he's like, no, um, I think it was a, I forget now what it was, but he was like, no, I've got this, I've got this other way of doing that and that works just fine. Oh, I think it was a steam mop. It was like a, a shark oh, steam okay. mop or something. Like, there no, you go. The, this mop works just fine. Don't need another thing to plug in or another motor, you know, something like that, that's going to break. Um, so I think it was just a, a lifestyle of simplicity that they had already grooved their way into so that at the point at which they had discretionary money, my mother was still clipping coupons from Costco and still saving a tablespoon of tomato paste. So it wouldn't go to waste. She, they just were frugal that way. And, um, but not miserly. Uh, the yeah. generosity that they uh, expressed was toward others. Um, 
I was a recipient of that generosity. I don't know how many students uh, had their tuition paid for, um, sabbaticals, retreats, therapy um, that my folks covered. Um, they, uh, I, I would have received a much bigger inheritance had they not been so generous. Let's put it that uh, way. <laughs> wow. Um, so um, but I, but I think that was the other thing is they, um, I don't know if it was a fear exactly, but a kind of a cautious, maybe a cautious respect for the, um, I mean, the love of money really is the root of all evil. Yeah, back and to losing your soul where we started, yeah, right? Precisely. It's not that I think hard. That's, it's very connected to that. So they were wary of it. Um, generous with other people. I never saw them, I think on their 50th anniversary, uh, they, they uncorked one. We went to a, a Vancouver Island to a kind of a bed and breakfast type place, uh, Sioux Harbor. Um, and that, there was a big bill at the end of that time. But, but you should uncork one when you're I was going to say, if you make it 50 years, yeah. then yeah, I mean, no, no one's criticizing you for that. Yeah. But they drove modest cars. Um, the house, yeah, I would say the house that they lived in at the end, there was um, a little more than middle class. They, they did some nice things, but I think that was largely motivated out of knowing that they would be entertaining people, uh, welcoming people into that space. That's what they said. We expanded it knowing that there would be many overnight guests. Yeah. 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 When, what did you see in terms of financial integrity with, uh, with Eugene and Jan? I saw everything that, um, that Eric described. I mean, when I was going through their, their files, I mean, I ran into their financial statements, you know, from their um, money given away and the number of students. He mentioned like PhD students who uh, Jan and Eugene just wrote the checks to pay their tuition for multiple years. Um, I remember one friend, uh, told me years later, um, Eugene, he, he was good friends with Jan Eugene and, and Eugene asked him, why didn't you ever ask us to pay your, uh, pay your PhD bill? And, and, and he said, well, I didn't know it was an option, you know, <laughs> but, um, I mean, one time when I was there, there was a story in the, the local paper, um, of, uh, I think it was a young girl who needed a kidney and, um, uh, it was just a, a story in the paper. And the next morning, Jan was on the phone calling the editor, uh, tracking down who this family was so that they could pay whatever was left and needed for her to, to have the operation. So this was just wow. the way they lived. That's impressive. You but know, Jan was darning their socks, you know, when there was a whole, right. holy socks, she was mending them. Um, I think I had to force him one time to actually go to Nordstrom's and get a real suit, you know, the, the stuff he was wearing was so shabby. They just did not indulge themselves. Um, but, but they did other, I mean, they didn't indulge others, but they cared for others. They just, they, they made life possible for some people. See, and this is, this is what is so beautiful about the story and what I appreciated about a burning in, my bones is it wasn't a hey geography and yet there is so much to admire and there's so much to ascribe to and 
I sent my wife uh, one of the videos yesterday and I said, I hope in 25 years we're somewhat similar to this. Like, that would be great. Wouldn't it be great to finish with that kind of an open door and an open heart and a willingness to help others and maybe think of others more than you think of yourself and just that that friendship. You could see that very deep friendship and fondness that uh, Eugene and Jan shared. Uh, but it wasn't all perfect in paradise either. We've talked about a lot of that, but there's two areas I, I want to talk about before we wrap up. One is um, the bourbon, you know, that, that, that shows up, that Eugene seemed to really enjoy his bourbon or his double every night. And that seemed to be a little bit of a, a struggle for him in some respects. Not that he was drunk or, or anything, but when, why did you include that in the book? What did you see there? And uh, tell us that part of the story. I think a main reason I included it was just because it, at some point it felt dishonest not to because he mentioned it so often in his journals. Um, I think it was very much tied to his his longing to be transformed by Christ. And I think he felt that there were times where this is just something that had more of a hold on him than he wanted. And he wanted to be shed of, of things that had to hold on him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was something that he referenced over a couple decades um, I think if I remember right, Eric, you mentioned that that wasn't something you were really familiar with. Is that right? Or am I wrong about that? Yeah, it didn't seem, um, I, I guess I didn't come to think of it as being inappropriate. Uh, so I didn't know that it was, uh, that he wrestled with it. Um, because it was a glass of bourbon after dinner or something like that. Yeah, Eric, it just didn't, or? it didn't affect the relationships. You know, that's sort of the, the, the uh, sort of the litmus test for me is, is that a problem? Right. Yep. Um, is, yeah. He was never, um, didn't seem to compromise him, but I think he, he felt it uh, like the next day, just didn't feel like he was clear headed to do the work he was called to do and just kind of kept berating himself. This, and this is me just learning from a uh, win after reading the journals um, that he came to um, kind of regret that. feel like this is, I mean, I think Wynn says it really well in the biography, you know, in, in every other aspect of his life, he's this highly disciplined person. And this was an area that, um, that he just couldn't say, didn't feel like he was in control of altogether, you know, um, again, not, not like he was an alcoholic or no. uh, out of control, but just, uh, didn't, didn't have that same, um, applied discipline. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I felt like it was important. I was glad it came out. I think it's important to, it's mostly encouraging for the rest of us mortals to kind of see someone that we admire to like, Oh, he struggled with that too. That's glad to know that. Yeah. And, and I think that's what makes the story even more compelling is that it is a journey and you see the wrestling with ministry. You see the wrestling with Oh, should I just stop drinking? You know, and again, as you said, it's not like he was an alcoholic, he was abusive, or he got drunk every night. That's not it. It's just that we all have one or two areas of our life that I think we all uh, struggle in. And I think realizing that some of the people that really have left a great legacy uh, were not that much different than we are. Um, probably, I got the opportunity to interview Eugene in the summer of 2017, which was, I remember when the email came in from the publisher, would you like 30 minutes with Eugene Peterson? I'm like, you name it, I'll be there. 
and I talked with them over the phone. There was none of this. There was no video. There was like, I called the landline at the place in Kalispell in, in Montana. And we had a conversation and it was just 30 minutes, but they're 30 minutes that I'll always treasure. Unfortunately, there was an interview that kind of went south on Eugene that final summer when he was, um, well, when he was talking about his book, his what would become his last book while he was alive as Kingfisher's Catch Fire. And um, it was a journalist who asked him a question about same-sex marriage and whether he would be affirming and do the wedding of a same-sex couple. And Eugene said, which this didn't come out, came out in the book after a long pause, said yes. And that kind of lit up the headlines for a few weeks. And do you want to pick up the story from there? Because uh, it was, it was, it just crushed me to see what happened to Eugene in those last months. And do you want to frame it for us, Wynn? And then I'd like to hear your take on it too, Eric. Yeah. I, I mainly would like to hear Eric because he was a little more on the inside um, yeah. with his, with his parents as it was happening. I, I arrived maybe three weeks um, back to their house after that. And it was the first thing Eugene wanted to talk about. I think he was devastated. Um, I mean, part of it is just to say, um, I think the whole, you're talking about the landline, a call. um, There would be times with Eugene where it was very, very obvious that he was struggling. And there were other times. It was clear to me in my interview. Yeah. that his memory wasn't what it was. Yeah. And there were other times where you'd be talking to him and it he would just be sharp as a tack. So it you know depending on the moment and I think I just think the honest reality is he shouldn't have been doing he was at a time in his life where he was past doing interviews, certainly past doing phone interviews without someone being there in conversation. And um Eugene his entire life uh um, some people called him coy. I don't personally think that's fair. I think he, he was up to something else than the agendas of the time. And so like he, answer a question with a question kind of coy. Yeah. Or just the fact that he didn't sort of trust the energies and often the, the arguments as presented. I mean, he, he was, it was about being a pastor to people and you don't do that over social media. You do that in conversation and, so I think, um, you know, at his best, Eugene would have um, offered more clarity. He, he would have, uh, or, or reframed the question, or um, not because he was afraid to say what he believed, but because he, he thought that this was a, these were relational things. Um, but I'll let Eric step in because Eric was, was more on the inside of, of what was happening there. Well, that's that's really well said. All that right there. I think it's important to to just affirm uh, that he was not at his cognitive best. I don't think that we realize just how compromised he was at that time. Um, and this, I've learned subsequently to this incident, is is oftentimes the case. Um, people that are exceptionally bright have a way of sort of masking their cognitive decline or dementia. And so it was worse than we realized. And he should not have been doing that interview, but we didn't realize it at the time. It was um, clearly an interview intended to be around that book. And so, as you said, it was unfortunate that the uh, interviewer uh, went off 
script got, you know, entered into a topic that he wasn't prepared to address, um, caught off guard. But I believe he answered it uh, the way that he would answer today. Uh, and so when, when that sort of that news hit and the kerfuffle ensued, um, the publishing, of, you know, a variety of publishing houses got their heads together along with an agent and wrote this retraction that he agreed to. <clears throat> and when I saw that come out uh, a day or two later, I was just incensed because I just felt like, uh, again, he's being taken advantage of um, putting words in his mouth. And so I, I wrote a, <clears throat> I wrote a, a clarifying letter and, uh, and sent it to this agent as a courtesy, just to say, this is coming out tomorrow. I just want you to know. And, um, he objected of course. And so, uh, turned out that the three of us, the agent, myself, and Eugene got on a three-way conference call from, you know, three different States. And I think the first 30 minutes was just this other person and me arguing about why or why this should not be, um, you know, put out there. And then Eugene was just quiet. And I, um, and I, I finally just doubted, uh, what do you think about all this? What do you want to do? And I thought he'd fallen asleep in Montana. He was just quiet for the longest time. And he finally, uh, this is, this is kind of embedded in my memory. I'm pretty sure I've got this exactly right. It was, I, 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 I just feel so incompetent. And because of that moment, I, I came to this real clarity. Like, my job here is not to speak for him anymore. And my job is not to defend him. My job is to protect him. And so we just got him out of, I mean, we just made sure that that would never happen again. Um, and his, his world got smaller, his life got quieter. Um, and I, you know, I consulted with a couple of people and Wynn was one of them. And I just said, I don't, I don't know what to do here. Uh, but because Wynn said, if you put this down, that is to put this letter down, I'll pick it up and I'll redress it in the biography. And because of my clarity that this wasn't my fight to fight and there may be some wisdom in a couple of years distance um, and just kind of letting things quiet down and not adding more fuel to this fire. Um, and just because of my great respect and trust of Wynn, um, I, I felt like, well, that's, I think that's the way to do this. So as you saw, he, um, he picked it up and addressed it. I thought beautifully and honestly, um, uh, with, with that, details that never made the story back in 2017 too. Right, right. There's, and you know, for the most part, people gave Eugene the benefit of the doubt. You'd have to. Yeah. Um, but it was a very unfortunate way to end a public career. And, uh, and that's why he, he, he continued to talk about it. He brought it up, kept talking about this person, you know, he, he would name the person and, and it was clear that it was a devastating experience. I felt, I felt so terrible and angry and, uh, you know, 
uh, as I said, your your dad and mom wrote me a beautiful handwritten note just thanking me for the conversation and sticking to the questions. And I think there's a lot to be learned for those of us who do what, what I do, what we do, about um, questions to ask and questions not to ask, and particularly of, 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 of conditions. And I think at the end of the day, it's a, it's a tiny little footnote on an incredible life, but it's a shame that there's that footnote at all because... Your dad wasn't well, in a place. It's the last footnote. It's the it's the one that gets remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Eric, you built the casket for your dad. Very simple pine box casket. I don't know if it's pine or not, but wood casket that that you milled. And shortly after your dad died, within a year, you were burying your mom as well. Uh, I want you to talk about what it was like losing both of your parents so quickly, um, coming to terms with that loss in, in the legacy that you will remember, the endearing legacy that you'll remember as their son. There's a whole lot there. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a whole other interview. When we saw the decline um, beginning to happen, I called a family meeting, got my sibs together. We spent two days in Montana. Yeah. Was and, it uh, Alzheimer's or dementia with your dad? It was a vascular related dementia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, there were a few other things going on, but that's what was, um, that's, that's really ultimately what, um, what compromised him. It was an infection that eventually, uh, shut his body down. Um, but he just couldn't fight. And for my mother, it was a glioblastoma brain tumor. Um, so for both of them, they had these end-of-life conditions that compromised them. I mean, they, they were dying before our eyes. And there's a real, I mean, it's always a mix, right? It's On the one hand, it's, um, it's a gift to have the heads up and to be able to take care of them and to say goodbye and to be there. We were, I was privileged to be with them at their bedside at the moment they died. And that's, that's a rare and holy gift. Um, on the other hand, you know, the sudden death is sometimes simpler. Um, but because of their condition, I think we were, I was at least prepared to let them go. Uh, they were clearly, their bodies were clearly saying, I'm giving up the ghost. And that longish goodbye in my in my estimation, is um, is it, it's a gift uh, for in terms of closure. So it was a relief at the moment when they gave their last breath, um, and um, and building his casket, building her urn. She was uh, she was cremated, and I built uh, the urn uh, for her remains. Um, that was that kind of felt like one of the just not the, but one of the final gifts to be able to give them. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna bury you. You know, and uh, do this last thing. It's not a stranger that does this intimate detail part of your life. It's, it's your son uh, because you asked me to do it. Um, he, uh, when I, when we had that family meeting, and I asked him some of those details, like how do you want this part to go? 
And, uh, and that was one of the questions. Is it memorial service or funeral? Is it body or cremation? And he said, he said, funeral. I want the full meal deal. Um, so just to be able to honor their wishes like that at the end to conduct their services. Um, and, and it was at that family meeting. This was a couple of years before they died. Uh, I had my legal pad and was asking all the questions and taking notes. And, and one of the questions I asked was, um, how, how do you want us to be thinking about your legacy? And he, after his pause, uh, which was customary, he said, you know, until you ask the question, I don't know that I've ever thought about that. And um, so we just went on to the next topic. But the next morning, as we were sort of shuffling around the kitchen, getting breakfast, he said, you know, I've been thinking about that question about legacy, and I, I think I've got an answer. And so I went over to the table and I grabbed my legal pad because I was going to write this down. And he said, you're my legacy. And I think that's right. Um, at first, it felt like heavy and like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not, you know, my middle name's Eugene, but I'm no Eugene Peterson. I'm Eric Eugene. Um, but to be, to be a part of his legacy, uh, I mean, everyone can do this. Wow. Uh, because you just have to live your own life with authenticity. You have to be yourself. Wow. Uh, that's what it means to live a Eugene Peterson legacy is you, you, you follow the, your identity as a beloved child of God. And you live into that purpose as you fumble and struggle your way through and discerning what that means, what a vocational, um, what that just, you know, what that unique call and claim on your life is. That's what it means to live, um, his legacy. And I think, I guess, I guess one of the things that sort of surprised me is I learned that I can honor my parents no less in death than I can in life. Um, and part of that is just living my life, you know, generously and loving people well and trying to be a person of grace and truth. You know, just the things that they were, that was a part of them. Um, so I, I think about them. I think I think about them every single day. I have a little ritual when I get dressed in the morning, when I put my, uh, when I get my car keys and things, I've got this little pocket knife that I gave him on Father's Day a hundred years ago, and I jacked it after he died with my sibling's permission. I've, and uh, so I, when I put, that in my, I put that in my pocket every morning, and I just say it out loud, I'm carrying you with me, Dad. And it's just this little, you know, physical, tangible reminder of like, I'm carrying Eugene with me. He's with me. And I think he and my mother are praying for me. Um, I think they're, I mean, I feel like he is sort of my bishop. He's still overseeing my life and ministry. That's really powerful, really profound, and a different way of thinking about legacy. You know, my dad's 83. He just had his birthday this week. And when my oldest son was in town last, he said, you know, I think our family has a legacy of love, and it started with Grandpa Newhoff. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, that is a legacy that transcends generations and life and death and when, when you think about legacy for Eugene and, and Jan, what, what metaphor, image, teaching, truth comes to life for you? 
I think of um, the people I've got to know. I, I've, one of my very favorite joys, unexpected, in writing, get a chance to write Eugene's story, was the vast array of wonderful people I got to meet. And I remember oh. thinking about halfway through, like, wow, <laughs> no wonder their life was so rich. I mean, this was just such good people. And I have deep, genuine friends now that I didn't have before. And Eric is like mm. a brother to me now. And I, I never met Eric. Um, and so I think of all of these people who in each of their own ways um, would say, I, I knew Eugene and Jan and they knew me. And there's something about that depth of um, offering your life to another person caring for another person, um, which I think transcends a lot of the things you write, a lot of the things you say. And I think the other thing is um, I keep thinking I should be able to f articulate this in a more interesting way or something, but it's it's this very simple thing um, that uh, God is at the true center of all that is good and beautiful. And I feel like Eugene just stood in the middle of this world over and over again in the midst of pastoral chaos and cultural um, uh, demise and um, immense questions and, and uh, the befuddlement of so many of us and just stood there with joy and that radiant smile and that raspy voice and was not very clever and just spoke God's name into the middle of this world. And I, I think that's his true legacy. Well, that is a beautiful, beautiful place to close this. I want to thank you. You've been so generous with your insights and your time. The authorized biography is a burning in my bones. And, uh, Eric so appreciated your book letter to a young pastor and obviously Eugene 35 books, I think is where maybe 36, 37. It was a lot. And, uh, and the message translation, of course, we'll link to everything in the show notes. If people want to follow either of you online, is there an easy place to connect with what you're doing these days, social or otherwise? Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping on. You are his legacy. There you go. There you go, Eric. Yeah. Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. How about you, Wynn? PetersonCenter.org if people want to know more about the, the Peterson Center and how we're trying to continue the conversation that, that Eugene was having. Great. I want to thank you so, so much for this. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, I so appreciate the nuance in that conversation, and we're not done yet on this episode. So uh, some of you who have been longtime listeners may remember that back in 2017, I interviewed Eugene Peterson. It was such a privilege, one of the highlights of being able to do this podcast. And it was by phone uh, from his cabin in Montana, and it was 30 minutes. I had 30 minutes with him, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do this interview moments before he retired from public life. There was that unfortunate incident we talked about with Wynn and Eric, and that was heartbreaking on a number of different levels. And it's talked about in the biography as well. But uh, I got a beautiful letter from Eugene after this, and I want to play that for you. And so here's the original interview I did with Eugene Peterson back in 2017. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. 
Well, it is an unbelievable thrill to have Eugene Peterson with me today. Eugene, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be able to interview you as I shared with you and, and with listeners. You have been leaving incredibly rich deposits in my life for decades now. And what a thrill to be able to do this. So you got a brand new book out. It's called As King Fishers Catch Fire. And uh, you, you start in the introduction by saying that when you were a young church planning pastor in 1962, you found a growing dissonance in your ministry. And so you labored, what you, you labored to find what you called congruence. Tell us about what you were experiencing in the early days of your leadership and how you moved through it. Well, I think what I was experiencing is a, is a kind of an innocence, um, mm-hmm. which... which uh, was kind of spoiled, getting me spoiled. Um, my presbytery asked me to start a new church. Right. And uh, I, I never had a, I've never been a pastor before. Uh, but the, uh, but they, this was a, in a small little town in near Baltimore, um, Bel Air. And uh, it's, it was kind of a suburb of, um, of Baltimore. And uh, I had many people in my congregation. It was a small congregation, just 50, 60 or so. And, uh, and then there were riots that were starting. And there was uh, and a lot of uh, violence going on in Baltimore. And my, my parishioners were just getting all upset about everything. They, they were buying guns. And I had one man who was a very mild man. And he bought a, bought a 14-inch uh, wrench had it in his, beside himself and as he went into town to make sure he could had something protecting <laughs> protecting him. Wow. Wow. And uh so um the uh and then my congregation, uh they were getting all, you know, mad about all this. And uh so I got mad. I <laughs> I said to them, Have you never have you never read you know, you're Presbyterians. <laughs> have you never read anything uh, in Galatians? Well, Galatians was Paul's angriest letter, yeah. and I was getting angry, and uh, so I just told him, you know, we can't do this. We're free. We, we can't just hem ourselves in by other people's bad attitudes, and um, so uh, it didn't make any difference. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> it felt like failure. And so I, thought, so I thought, well, I'll get together a bunch of men, mostly the men who work in Baltimore. And uh, we'll just study study Galatians and find out what Paul thought about this. That you're free and you can't do this. And um, I had about 16 men uh, in that uh, room, and I, I always fixed a pot of coffee for them and mm. before they came in. And, um, and I, you've got to realize that I mean I was emotionally like distraught, yeah. and they were they were just afraid of what was going afraid afraid of what was going on in Baltimore. And uh, I was afraid of what was going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I started on Galatians. Uh, and uh, it just, you know, I could tell it didn't make any difference. They were just stirring coffee, sugar in their coffee and that kind of thing. And um, So uh, I left. I went back home after church, told my wife, and it was, they were just paying any attention. Right. And she said, well, and then I said, I, I think I'll teach them Greek. If I taught them Greek, they'd get it. She said, that would really empty the place out fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So instead of um, 
teaching them Greek, I thought, well, I'd, I'd been studying uh, Semitic and Greek uh, for, uh, for a PhD, and so I had these, these other, these biblical languages pretty much, uh, I was pretty conversant with them. So I thought, well, I'll take, I'll take these languages and I'll translate them into the vernacular, Baltimore vernacular, right, and uh, and see what happens. So I took a sheet of paper every week and um, and translated what I would think of as American vernacular mm-hmm. in their language. And uh, the week after I did that. As I was cleaning up afterwards, and all the coffee cups were cold. They'd, hmm. They were just infatuated by this new language <laughs> wow. that they'd never heard before. And uh, so that's what started it. And, uh, and so I just kept doing that and kept doing that. And uh, finally, the riots stopped, but I didn't stop because I thought, well, I've got a whole congregation of people who doesn't know the language, the biblical hmm. language. And uh, so that's how it started. Uh, that's amazing. So that was the origin of the message, was it? That's the origin of the message. That's right. In the middle of the turmoil of the 1960s, as a young church planning pastor in Bel Air, Maryland, that's I. That is amazing. And you just, it, it, I think I, I read in an interview you did with someone else that it was like 20 years, over 20 years to write the message, maybe longer than that. That's right. Wow! Wow! What a labor of love, and 35 books as well, which is which is exceptional. On that note. You see things so differently than so many writers, thinkers, and theologians, and that's one of the things that's always been a gift to me. What are some of the habits and the disciplines and the rhythms that you have practiced over the course of your life in ministry that you think helped you hone the perspective that God has given you on life? Well, I think it's a complex question, really. Yeah. Um, books have always been important to me, and uh, and I've you know, sought for books that gave me some in- inspiration or some guidance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I never read the newspaper or very, you know, very superficially. Really? Huh. And uh, yeah, they were, and the newspaper wasn't a very big help in understanding God and Jesus. Right. Um, and so I think, but, but I also, I schooled myself in some of the, uh, what I realized were the great preachers and and uh, pastors in the past. Hmm. And uh, Alexander White was the first one that I've discovered. He was, uh, he was a pastor in Scotland uh, in, the, in the, well, 150 years ago, maybe more. Hmm. And, uh, and he, was, he was a great storyteller and uh, had a wonderful way of using words and the gospel. No, would you just, how, how did you find him? How did you, that, that, that's a name I'm not even familiar with. I'm not sure a lot of people would be. Why, why Alexander White? I'm just curious. Uh, I was reading. I was reading in the library and I found him. Huh? And he, he was the most popular pet preacher in, uh, in Scotland for um, a number of years. And so I just, uh, well, um, let me find out what he's doing. <laughs> and uh, he's a, he was a great storyteller, but not, um, not, not loose, not just being funny. Yeah. Um, but his students, uh, just they they flocked to his church, uh, the ones in the seminary. And uh, one of them one day, uh, I think this is a wonderful story. Uh, said, um, "Doctor White, what's the most important thing for a pastor to do?" And he paused for a minute and he said, 
take a long vacation and relieve yourself as often as possible. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's <laughs> the leading pastor in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> take a long vacation and relieve yourself as often as possible. <laughs> That's great advice. Okay, so you love to read. That's one of the habits and 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 disciplines. Is, yeah. You've been a lifelong reader. Any other? I mean, you you talk about is it Paul Turnier and others that really influenced you? Who who are a few of the others that you would say, you know, they're on the top shelf of my library? Uh, well, Turnier was was one of them. He wasn't mm. a pastor, but um, I, I think uh, in my my a contemporary of mine was George Buttrick. Oh, yes. Yeah. When I went to seminary, uh, I wasn't planning on being a pastor, but I was, my seminary forced me to work in the church. <laughs> so I just, I had to do it. it was, what, what were you uh, planning on being if you weren't going to be a pastor? A professor of languages. <sighs> gotcha. And uh, so I was assigned to a, to a church, uh, well, his church, uh, the Presbyterian Church in uh, the center of of the, uh, the city. Right. And I'd never heard preaching like that before. Uh, With David Buttrick. Yeah. With Buttrick. Or yeah. Uh, George, sorry, David's his son. Yeah, George, George Buttrick. Buttrick. Yeah. And uh, so I, was, I wasn't intended to do, attend church. I was, they made me the coach of the basketball team. <laughs> and so I thought that would take care of one of my, my obligations. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I went, first Sunday I was there, I heard him preach and I, he, there's nothing dramatic about him, uh, but he is so clear and so kind of matter-of-fact. Hmm. I later found out that um, who's the guy who, he writes novels, Beekner. Oh, yeah, Frederick Beekner. Yep. Frederick Beekner. Also so, a Presbyterian, I think. Right. And so I knew about him and uh, had read most of his books. And uh, But he was there in church every Sunday with the man I was studying for an hour. Yeah, yeah. Patrick, yeah. So um, I let Beekner be. I didn't know him. I never met him. Uh, but I, uh, I kind of let him guide me in terms of the writers that are worth reading for people who are interested in, in life and just getting the truth of life. And so he, was, he became an important part of my reading life. Uh, and uh, so I just kind of went from one person to another. I never went to good schools, to tell you the truth. Right. You might cut that out of the, on the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't the school so much. It was self-learning that... Uh, it was self-learning, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would, you know, picked up along the way, I picked up people who knew, knew a lot more than I did. Yeah. And uh, I, so I, I just kind of picked them from my faculty. And That's uh, great. So it so, wasn't like this big program or anything. It was just one led to another, led to another, led to another, and you never stop. That's right. That's right. Hmm. One of the things I've heard you write about um, in the past, or I've, I've read from you in the past, is your Sabbath rhythm has been really important for you and your wife, Janice. And can you, can you tell us a little bit about your Sabbath rhythm, what you've done with it over the years, how you practiced it in ministry, and what it looks like these days? Uh, no, I can't think of his name. He was a, he was a, uh, he was a Quaker. Quaker, okay. And uh, Jan and I, I'll think of it, Hopefully, when this, as I talk, uh, Jan and I, we were pretty new in this new church right. development stage. And so we went to a, a retreat in the Poconos. Hmm. And, uh, and this man was there leading the retreat. 
maybe you'll think of him. But anyway, he, uh, there were about 25 of us there, uh, 30 maybe. And uh, he told us that this was going to be a silent retreat. Wow. Well, that just about destroyed my, my wife. <laughs> it's like to be silent for two days, three days. <laughs> and uh, so we started out, uh, I mean, I think I was fortunate in getting in finding people I didn't know, know anything about. Right. Said he said he had a friend who was, um, when he was growing up, who was um, specialized in men's retreats. And when he right. got people together in their retreat place, he made them open up their suitcases and he confiscated all the whiskey. <laughs> and he said, you can have it back when, we, when you leave if you still want it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so silence and no whiskey. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he, he called us to into, into, his, into the silence of the retreat. And uh, so for a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the afternoon, we were just in silence. And uh, we weren't allowed to, we weren't, we weren't permitted to talk to anybody. And, uh, and one of the first surprises to me is how good the food was. It just, you know, you began to see the food is beautiful and, and mm. the aromas were perfect. And so there was kind of an introduction to a way of life, which was not, um, was not supported by uh, reason or uh, or, or reason or um, except to take uh, emptier suitcases before you went on retreat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was just a, a different pace and a different rhythm that really different got pace you hooked. And a different yeah. and a very different trusting to silence. <laughs> and uh, I never, I grew up Pentecostal and silence was not one of their big things. <laughs> So Pentecostal, so anyway, who became a Presbyterian, who became right. almost monastic. I heard you say at one point that you were a monk in your head, right? In some ways. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, that started it. Yeah. And uh, we were there for three days, and we left different. And when we got home, we decided we would keep a Monday Sabbath. Every Monday we would be on be Sabbath. And so when the kids, we, the, all our kids at that point were in school. And um, so after we fixed their lunches and sent them off on the bus, uh, they, we went to, this was in Baltimore now, and uh, right. the, the environs of Baltimore are just beautiful uh, with their rivers and, and brooks and uh, meadows. So we find we had plenty of room to walk in. And, and so we'd go to the some creek, usually, river, yeah. and uh, we already packed our lunches. And we would just walk for three hours. Mm. And uh, sometimes it was hard to not say something, but we, we did pretty well. And then we'd stop and have lunch, pray, and, uh, and then talk. Mm. Talk about the birds we'd seen. We were very avid bird, birders. Yeah. And, uh, and just um, and talk about Sunday. Sunday just passed. And uh, we did that for years and years and years. Uh, while the kids were still in school, and, um, and they 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 grew to appreciate it themselves. They they didn't have to do anything on Mondays. Right. They didn't have to make their bed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> was, that was the biggest thing right there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's pretty exciting to an eight year old. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, but we did that for a long time, and and then when the kids left, um, we 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 revised that a little bit because of the 
Yeah. Our, our congregation had been growing, and yeah. we kind of rearranged our silence things. So, but anyway, that's how it started. And it's becoming, it was kind of a habitual thing to it. You know, we, we, didn't, um, we didn't have to sit down and figure out what we were going to do. It you know, become kind of our, uh, the habit of our life but that, mm. by that time. And so it, it really did something to our whole lives, our married life, our pastoral life. And uh, people in the congregation started noticing. I never preached a sermon on Sabbath keeping. Yeah. But they, they were observing and doing things. And it wasn't long before, I don't want to exaggerate, but maybe right. tenth, of, tenth of the congregation was, keep, was keeping a Sabbath also. And, uh, and it, you know, it picked up. People watched what other people were doing. And so I think it really changed my pastoral life, my, my relationship with my, with my congregation. Because one of the things I, I think I've just picked up from uh, my, my Quaker friend yeah. uh, was uh, you, don't, you don't push the gospel down anybody's throat. Mm. Uh, you, you act it out yourself. And if they align it, they take it. If they don't, they don't. And so <clears throat> there was kind of a reversal of, of technique instead of, as a preacher, telling people what to do uh, and letting them watch what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's just changed the whole tenor of my pastoral life. I can sense that. I sense that even in your voice and in your, in your rhythm. Can I ask you, as a, as a very prolific writer, um, how did, did that impact or influence your writing at all? Like that, that kind of rhythm, that space in your life, do you think that your ability to write that often and that well was somehow related to your Sabbath rhythm? Uh, yes, it was, but it was not conscious. Hmm. Uh, I, uh, I, was writing, I was reading people who I admired yeah. or respected, maybe I should say respected, and uh, so, no, I, I don't think I changed. Well, I changed because I was right, reading people that I admired. And, um, but I didn't copy them. They, you know, you, you can't copy somebody when you're being creative. Right. And, and uh, so that, that just kept things going for me. Hmm. So it was more reading other writers that got your pen moving? Is that it? That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah. And picking the right, right writers. Right. Uh, the uh, megachurch people didn't phase me, so I just ignored them. <laughs> and did did uh, did the slow work of of writing and thinking and praying. Um, speaking of leaders, I, I can't believe we're coming to the home stretch already, and I'm so grateful for the time you made available. We've got tens of thousands of leaders listening and thousands of young pastors. So. I've seen interviews that were shot on video at your place in Montana. Do you still have that place? It's absolutely gorgeous from what I've oh, seen. Oh yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're retired now. Yeah. So yeah. I don't. I don't have a congregation. Right. Right. Yeah. Twenty-five. Twenty-six years retired. Yeah. Yeah. So I want you to imagine that you're sitting down with a young pastor, young senior pastor, young senior leader. He or she is with you at your kitchen table, at your place in Montana, and you're going to give them two or three nuggets of here's what you need to keep in mind as a young leader in the church today. What would you tell them? Um, I don't give nuggets. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I have a lot of uh, young pastors who come and stay here, 
Yeah. Uh, we used to have them stay overnight, but it, that got too much. Sure. But we have some great bed and breakfast here, and so I just sent them down there. But um, no, I I think I I think I start by, by asking questions. Mm. And why do you like what you're doing, and what disappoints you? And uh, and they, you know, people are smart. Yeah. If they're not cluttered up by other stuff, and if you're mimicking somebody else, then it's you're you're not a writer or mm. not a preacher. Uh, so I think the the years now that I've not had a congregation, I've been doing as much pastor work as I ever did, but it wasn't, it wasn't an obvious thing. It was right. So you'd start by asking questions. Hmm. Yeah. Just asking questions and commenting and commenting on their answers. And yeah. That's so a good I'm, way to learn. Uh, yeah. It's the way I learned. I learned from Buttrick who didn't tell me what to do. I learned from, um, the guy in Scotland, uh, who did tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew White, is that it? Yeah. 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 yeah so that's, I think I was, I was, uh, I was never a copier. I, I was, when I met people, I'd watch what they were doing, listen to them. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know. I, I think I was yeah. pretty self-taught in many ways. That's good to know. And well, you've, you've literally taught millions through what you've done. I've got to just once again, personally say thank you. And and I think I can be so bold on behalf of all the leaders listening, church leaders listening. Thanks so much for an unbelievably rich um, heritage and legacy. Your new book is King, uh, Kingfisher's Catch Fire, a collection of 49 of your sermons. Well worth reading. And I think there's a devotional coming out next year. Is that right? One more thing? There is, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eugene Peterson, thank you so much for being with us today. You're you're welcome. You've made it very easy for me. Man, it's so good to hear from Eugene again, and I'm so grateful for his legacy, and I'm going to treasure the letter that he and Jan wrote to me forever. I've got it, and I'm, I'm so, so grateful. And I'm so thankful we have the opportunity to do this. My goodness, I'm going to tell you about some of the guests that we've got coming up. We're going to continue this integrity series. I want to thank our partners before I give you what's coming up. Uh, the preaching workshop that I'm doing. Registration closes July 10th. Go check it out at preachingworkshop.com. It's absolutely free. I want to help you preach better sermons. And forget TikTok, Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. Texting is the number one way to communicate. Church leader, go to glue.us slash texting, and you can get started for free today. It's absolutely free. Well, next episode, we continue the Integrity Series, and I'm talking to Chuck DeGrote about narcissism in the church, including signs you work for a narcissist, how to tell if you're a narcissist, why church planters are prime candidates for narcissistic leadership. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's a thing. And the problem with hyper-therapeutic culture. Here's an excerpt. Are there some signs that would indicate that your boss is a narcissist? Yeah, so the characteristics that you uh, named earlier are signs to look for. Whenever you see the uh, manipulation of, of power, uh, the misuse of power—that's a sign. Uh, whenever your uh, you, your experience in an organization is such that there's not space for your full person to show up, uh, for your voice to show up, that may be a sign that you're working under someone who's trying to squelch your voice and is potentially narcissistic. Whenever you sense that there's an entitlement to success, to being right, to being respected, to some kind of not—that th- may be a sign that you're working. 
with a narcissist. Whenever you see that there are different standards for him than there are for you, and I realize mm. that there are different expectations in, within hierarchical organizations, but radically different standards, you might be working with a narcissist. I felt like Chuck and I could have talked for five hours. That's next time. It's extremely illuminating. And I hope you get a sense by now, this little series is not a hit piece on the church. I'm here to build a better future. And I would love for you to be a part of that. So if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Please leave us a rating and review. And we want the church to get healthier. I want to get healthier. I want you to get healthier. Coming up, we got a couple more episodes in this mini integrity series. Colin Hansen, Tim Keller's biographer. And then I've got a Tim Keller special coming up. Also coming up, Paula Ferris on the podcast, Kevin Kelly, Kenny Jang. Who else have we got? We got Richard Foster, John Acuff, John Maxwell is coming back on the show, Dave Ramsey, John Christ for the first time, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Mike Todd, and a lot more. So that's coming up. And hey, before we go, have you signed up for my newsletter yet? I have so much fun writing it. We share some really curious, helpful, relevant things. Everything about the church, but also some really interesting stuff that I just find fascinating. And I find I learn best when I learn from a variety of sources. And that's what we bring you every single Friday for free. It is super easy to subscribe and unsubscribe. So it's not for you. I get that. But if it is, you'll want to check it out. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You can get started for free. Thank you so much for listening to this. I so enjoy doing this with you. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. 